So, <clears throat> what I want to talk about tonight is love and the emptiness of things. The emptiness of things. But first, in a way, I want to review some of the salient features of what we've what we've been doing so far. So, at a very basic level, of course, we've been, we are, cultivating metta, loving-kindness, cultivating loving-kindness, and cultivating compassion. And I don't think that I need to persuade anyone of, of the, the blessings of that at, the, at this point in the retreat. And so we see through through the cultivation the blessings uh, of doing this that come for self and for other. And if it's not clear yet what comes out towards other, it it does get clear as we move into as we move into our life, our, our usual life. And so to to repeat the analogy that I've used many times, we're planting these seeds, planting the seeds of intention, and we're reconditioning. We're reconditioning the heart and the mind, which essentially, you could say, is, is, a, is a, a whirlpool, a, a web of conditioning, of conditions and habits of conditions, and we're reconditioning it slowly, patiently, gradually. And in that, through that, transforming the heart, transforming our intentions, so that the way we act in the world comes out of our mouth, uh, our thoughts, all of that is gradually, slowly transformed. Remember the Buddha's uh, words, drop by drop the bucket is filled. Drop by drop the bucket is filled. That's very basic uh, level of what we're doing. Another aspect, and rather part of that, is that through cultivating loving kindness and compassion, we're also nurturing and establishing the best possible climate for our growth. So psychological, emotional, spiritual growth. It's the best possible climate. I know if I reflect back on, on my past, trying at times uh, to work very hard on understanding myself or on transforming myself, and yet not holding that process, not holding myself in that process in a climate of kindness. I was barely aware of it at the time. And what happens? Just running into a brick wall or backfires in some way. Maybe there's some transformation, but not that the fullness of that will not be available. And so whatever growth we're talking about, meditative, spiritual, however, the loving kindness and compassion are the best possible climate. When the Buddha described his path, and the path that he set forth, it's interesting, he didn't teach that much about technique and meditation technique. It's a little bit, but it's not generally that common. Rather, what he does over and over is encourage us to strive for two things, to work, to develop two things. One is 
a wholesome nourishment, a wholesome sense of the being, the, the body, the mind, the heart being nourished. And wholesome meaning ways that don't lead to our harm or the harm of others. Wholesome nourishment, so what's in that? It's all these qualities, loving kindness, compassion, generosity, equanimity, etc., etc., mindfulness. And developing these qualities that give the being a really deep, really satisfying grounding in nourishment. It's like there's a reservoir inside, slowly, slowly. There's a reservoir inside. And that wholesome nourishment is one aspect of what he encouraged. And the other aspect is investigation for insight. And these two kind of wings of the path, developing what's beautiful for the nourishment, and then the investigation. So, in a way, the metta is, again, is part of that very deep, wholesome nourishment. And the more we have of that, in a way, the freer we are in life. We are less dependent on others, less dependent on circumstances. We have enough. We have enough, and it's not cold, it's not <coughs> uncaring or isolationist, it's just that we have enough and it can flow over. Part of the wholesome nourishment is samadhi. So, For me, I don't know how it seems for you, it seems like a long time ago that I, I spoke about samadhi. But I was hoping that, talking about it at the beginning, that it would be something that we would keep in our minds, in the sort of back of our awareness for the whole retreat. And it's interesting, we come here for three weeks or longer, whatever it is, and a lot of stuff happens. A lot of stuff happens in our experience. We go through a lot of stuff. There's a lot of aspects to what we're doing. We talk about love and compassion. There's a lot of aspects to that. One aspect, and I've talked on this, is questioning. So we question what is compassion, actually, when I really look at it? How is that different from, say, pity or, or whatever else? What is my attitude towards that? What blocks it, etc.? So there's a real questioning going on. That's very much a part of what's going on. And at times, as, as you all know, things come up for us. We find ourselves in difficult territory. Old feelings come up, or just feelings in the moment come up. We're struggling. Or well, it's just something charged, not even that much struggle. That too is part of the process. So there's the questioning, there's allowing ourselves to feel what needs to be felt at times, feeling the feelings. And there's the encouragement, the, the nurturing of the samadhi, which is actually a quietening of the questioning and a quietening of turbulence of feelings, which sometimes seem like they really demand to be felt, demand to be looked at. So all that somehow needs to fit into the picture of what we're doing. Sometimes we're more questioning, sometimes we're more allowing what, what needs to bubble up, and sometimes we're just developing the samadhi and letting things get quiet, de developing that journey into the depth, into the stillness, into the subtlety. Now what I see kind of reviewing a bit what I said about samadhi, is that most people that I come across in, in, in meditation circles tend not to give as much emphasis or believe as much in the importance of samadhi as, as perhaps they, they should. It's almost like we don't quite trust that or give it as much weight 
and so partly just refreshing that that's definitely an, a factor here for the, for the depth and the depth of understanding, the depth of opening, the depth of transformation. As I said, the samadhi is one of the factors, it's just one, so all the others are important, it's one of the factors that allows the, the love and the compassion to kind of come into the cells, something very visceral almost about it, very deep. But again, they're all important, and to, all, all, all those aspects are important to know what one's tendencies are. And is my tendency to avoid? Or is, you know, what is it? So there's this wholesome nourishment and insight, and we're kind of developing both in, in a lifetime of practice. With the cultivation of qualities that bring a wholesome nourishment, so one of which is samadhi and loving-kindness and compassion, etc. Very important to see that it's not about self-improvement. And how easily the judging mind comes in, the measuring mind comes in. How am I doing? And particularly with concepts like samadhi or metta or compassion, whatever it is. I have it, I don't have it. How, how, how am I in relation to others? So it's really not about self-improvement. And the whole notion of a self to improve begins to just loosen in time with practice. And yet, we can still be really committed to this process of cultivation, of developing the nourishment, of reconditioning. And yet there's no self at the center of it. No self at the center of it, and yet we're totally committed. So this reconditioning is, it's not, it's not a, it sounds such a mechanical and dry word. It's actually a very important part of what's going on, as I said. I remember, it was a couple of years ago, at, um, I taught a day retreat on compassion in London. And in the question and answer period, a gentleman stopped me, well, he asked a question, and he said, conditioning, conditioning, conditioning. <laughs> all this conditioning, isn't it just going round in the circles of what's conditioned? How are you going to move? How is the mind going to move towards what's unconditioned? And the Buddha talks about what's unconditioned as the goal of the path. Aren't you just playing endlessly, fiddling with conditions? <laughs> I think it was coming from a, a genuine, you know, caring place. <laughs> I'm actually not sure to this day, but there is, first of all, the importance of just that relative level of just reconditioning the mind. As I said, at one level, the mind, you could say, again, it's not a very glamorous image, but the mind is a web, uh, a mass, a vortex, a spaghetti bowl of habits of conditioning. And we can begin to recondition that. Tremendous amount of freedom, well-being, peace, joy, etc. come out of that. It's just at the relative level. And that's absolutely fine and actually crucial. And there is the conditioning, the setting up of conditions, the nurturing of conditions that actually leads to the unconditioned. And actually in its deepening and in its unfoldment, leads towards the unconditioned, what is not conditions, what is not born of conditions, what is not a condition. 
I mean, that's partly to do with what I'm going to talk about uh, in this talk. I'll come back to that. So this is all still review. But last point. As we do metta and compassion practice, and many of you will, will have felt this to some degree, to any degree, any degree is good, that the sense of self can soften at times. And the actual self and the walls of the self, the boundaries of the self, begin to soften, begin to be more open, more spacious, more permeable in a way. And this is hugely important because we get a, a glimpse of living without this self-constriction, living without binding ourselves and defining ourselves and wrapping us up wrapping ourselves up so much in, in the self, we begin to get a sense of perhaps oneness or a flavor of this not-self, this no-self, this, this anatta. And so loving-kindness and compassion just lead naturally to a, a less fixed, less rigid, less tightly bound sense of self at times. At times it moves that way. And something in that opening, in that softening, begins to shake up and awaken some understanding about the self and the nature of the self. And again, giving compassion and love to oneself, it's not building up the ego, it's not building up the sense of self. The way the sense, and to, to explore this in our lives and our practice, the way the sense of self gets built up, the way the ego gets built up, is through a problematic relationship with the self, a judgmental, a critical, a harsh relationship with the self, a rigidly defined relationship with the self. Problematic self-view builds up the ego. And when we have matter towards ourself, compassion towards ourself, that actually begins to soften. So there's an easing of the sense of self at times, at times, with these practices. Okay, so far, so good, I hope. <laughs> all, all that is in the realm of what we could call traditionally understood practices of loving-kindness and compassion. I remember, quite some years ago, I don't remember when it was, I lived in America, and nearby was an urban, non-residential uh, meditation center, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And about twice a year, they would publish their program of speakers and weekend retreats and day retreats and this and that, and courses. And for a period of about, I don't know, five years at least, every time it would come out, twice a year, it would have a nice picture of the Buddha on the front, and a quote, and for about five years, the quote was from the Lotus Sutra, one of the m very influential Mahayana Sutras, and it said, see all things with the eyes of compassion, see all things through the eyes of compassion, end quote, of the Buddha. And usually I would just get the program and, uh, you know, who's coming, and yeah, very nice, okay, okay, which courses do I want to do? And it took a while, but then at some point, the I just noticed, hold on, 
It doesn't say see all beings with the eyes of compassion. It says see all things with the eyes of compassion. What could that mean? What could that mean? Does it mean, you know, to regard the microphone with compassion? The poor microphone has to sit here and listen to me drone on and on. <laughs> 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 Is that what it means? There's another uh, Mahayana Sutra. It's called the Aksayamati Sutra. I don't think it's nearly well known as, uh, as the, the Lotus Sutra. There's a line in there. And it, said, it says, At the beginning of the spiritual life, love is directed towards beings. With those who are further advanced on the path, love is based on dharmas. And for those who have seen, well, say, deeply into emptiness, let's say, or seen the unconditioned, actually, say, seen deeply into emptiness, love is not based on anything. So, at the beginning of the spiritual life, love is directed towards beings. With those who are further advanced on the path, love is based on dharmas. And for those who have seen deeply into emptiness, love is not based on anything. Now, we could certainly hear something like that and be, be, you know, understandably quite perplexed at what on earth that is talking about. And actually, I, I have actually changed the translation here because I uh, feel that there's been some misunderstanding. But anyway, it's a, it's a difficult thing to understand. So a couple of words, translations. First of all, compassion and love. In the, a lot of the Mahayana traditions, they use it interchangeably, or rather, they often more often use the word compassion to mean both what we're talking about, compassion and loving-kindness. Here they've done the same thing, but with love. Less rigidly different, the terms. So, both of those statements, the Lotus Sutra, see all things with the eyes of compassion. It means with kindness and compassion. And what is a dharma? What does this mean? Love is based on dharmas, directed to dharmas. A dharma has a lot of different meanings in, in the teachings. And one of them just kind of means things. It just means things. But it means things things as experiences or objects of awareness. So something arising in awareness is a dharma. So whatever that is, a body sensation, a thought, an intention, a mood, a mind state a moment of samadhi, whatever it is, compassion, they're all dharmas, they're all dharmas. So it's just a thing in awareness, a thing as an experience. A, a dharma is never just things on their own. Does it always have to be related to the awareness or the experience? M- my understanding is yes, yes. And that's that's subtle but quite fundamental shift, yeah. yeah. So... Yeah? Okay. Okay. Now, on one level at first, this doesn't make any sense logically, and what on earth is it talking about? But we saw with the guided meditation this morning, and you've been practicing today, just to review that a little bit. We can, in our practice, direct this stream at times when we feel a stream of loving kindness and compassion, actually direct it towards experience, whatever the experience is, and actually bathe that experience in loving kindness and compassion, or compassion or both, or mixture, or whatever it is. We can 
hold it in compassion, hold it in love, or let it be held in that in that uh, water of love. We can, if you're just talking about the techniques now, the way to experiment with it, we can use the phrases or just a word in the phrases if that feels helpful. You can experiment with this mode of opening the door of awareness, opening the door of consciousness and totally, totally welcoming. Just opening it up so so it can be there. So, emphasizing the love emphasizing the loving-kindness and compassion, and not so much... uh, emphasizing the loving-kindness and the compassion and the acceptance, and not so much emphasizing the precise clarity of noticing or noting or seeing exactly what's going on. Oftentimes when we talk about mindfulness and we practice mindfulness, that's what gets emphasized is the clarity of what's going on, the clarity of seeing what's going on, the precision of seeing. So it's a different approach when one's really emphasizing the acceptance, which also is talked about as part of mindfulness, but really leaning towards emphasizing the acceptance aspect, the love aspect. So emphasizing a total welcoming, as long as it's genuine. And so one works in the practice to make it completely genuine, really, really welcoming this experience. So that The arising of any experience is completely welcomed, completely held in that love. Does that include the discriminating aspects here, when you start discriminating automatically between um, good and bad, or the the feelings, the the emotions around the experience? The discriminating mind sets in automatically sometimes. I'm not quite sure what you mean. Well, can you save it for the end? Because it sounds important. Is that is that okay? Yeah. Because we'll, we'll have questions afterwards. So I think there's something important there. But can we can we save it? Is that all right? The arising of all experiences, the staying. So an experience, a phenomena, a dharma stays in consciousness for a while, short or long, and it passes. And so the arising is held in love, is bathed in love, is completely welcome. The staying and the passing, completely held and and uh, bathed in, in loving kindness. So, so there's there's a few different, slight different emphases of approach, even within what we just said. One can move, work in a more directing way. So this is what came up this morning. We can direct that stream when one feels it. Direct that intentionality. Or it can be much more holding and much more of a kind of relaxing into a space that's kind of imbued or shot through with loving kindness. Much more receptive mode. One can be directing or receptive. It's fine. At times, of course, what's going to come up is resistance or no feeling or whatever. But there's something about this. It's almost like whatever is going on, the attitude of acceptance and welcoming can always just expand a little bit and include include whatever it is. Any resistance, any I hate this, I hate da, 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 whatever it is, just expands. That's okay. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So in a way, there's nothing outside the domain, outside the range of this this loving kindness, this compassion. 
Nothing's outside it. Whatever is going on can actually be welcomed and included. In a way, for some people, a way in is when we look inside, and what we encounter when we look inside is just a stream, so to speak, or an endless cornucopia, an endless arising and passing of experience. It's just whatever arises, it just passes. Whatever arises, it just passes. Everything is so fleeting. And so things, phenomena, dharmas, are fleeting by their nature when we look at them. And in a way, you could say, they're deserving of compassion. They're impoverished. They barely last. There's, you know? So question. What happens... What happens to feelings when we do this, when we bathe them in love, when we totally welcome, when we hold them in that? What happens to the feelings? What happens to mental states? Thank you. (laughs) I'm so glad you said that because it's happened over here, but sometimes I think I'm going to ask and and everyone's just going to stare at me blankly. <laughs> but I've decided I know what I would do in that case. I'd make everyone sit up all night until they. <laughs> but anyway, um, so what happens to feelings? What happens to mental states? What happens to body sensations? What happens to our perceptions of things? They can. And this really is a practice, so it might be clear to some people at this point, it might be less clear to others. It's really fine. This is one option in, in the wealth of Dharma options there are. And one may take to it, one may not take to it, it's fine. But, and, and it's practice. It's a practice that one can develop, and that's really important to see. But it can be, as has been said, that things, Dharmas, experiences, phenomena, may soften. They, they soften they're na- they're, the experience of them actually softens. They begin, can begin to lose their edges. They can begin to lose their definition, uh, to blur. Even, as, as uh, Jeanette said, they can dissolve or they can fade, either a little bit or a lot or completely. Did, did people find that generally, even a little bit? Yeah. Something, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, it may be, particularly for someone, well, no, it, it just may be, that we hear this or come across this and think, well, ho- hold on here, let's just, let's just hold on a minute. That's, that can't be right. That can't be proper vipassana meditation. That can't be proper insight meditation. But remember, the Buddha didn't teach insight meditation. And what I said at the beginning, what he taught much more is this wholesome nourishment, wholesome developing of what's beautiful, and and the the well-being that that provides, and the well of well-being that that provides. And investigation. And it's not that he taught a particular technique or you have to do this or that. It's those two together that were taught. And out of that, out of the wholesome nourishment, the 
the deepening of this inner reservoir of well-being gradually, slowly over time, that together with the investigation, in whatever form the investigation takes, brings a freedom. And that's what he cared about, and that's what we should care about, is the freedom. The actual route to the freedom, whether it fits in the neat confines of our image of some technique or not, that's totally irrelevant. The route doesn't matter. The freedom matters. And the principle is almost always the same for the Buddha. Wholesome nourishment, investigation. And, of course, in a life of practice, one has different approaches at different times. Of course one does. And straightforward, what we normally understand by Vipassana practice, beautiful, beautiful practice, very powerful, very valid at times. But let's explore this a little more. In mindfulness practice, there's actually an assumption there, quite a big one and often a subconscious one, one that we're not quite fully aware of, or maybe we're we're actually saying it out loud. The assumption is that mindfulness is something neutral. The assumption is that there's something called mindfulness that, this came up in a question-answer period a week or more, more, more than a week ago, the assumption is that there's something called mindfulness, that what it can do is attend to things and see things in their naked actuality. There's something called mindfulness which doesn't interfere in any way, and it's just seeing things as they are, that phrase, things as they are, which is a very well-worn phrase in the Dharma, things as they are. And the assumption is that mindfulness, letting go of the story, letting go of my likes, dislikes, and all that, coming close to things, I'll see the bare actuality of what the thing is. Or I will see, be in touch with what is. And sometimes, even say more problematically, sometimes we can come to take as a view of the path, as a view of the goal, that the goal of the path is being with things as they are. Being with what is. And these become very charged concepts. What is things as they are. But again, that's never, never, never the goal of the path. It's a beautiful way of practicing, it's a beautiful way of being, cannot be the goal of the path. The goal of the path is is an understanding, a very deep understanding that brings freedom with it. It brings freedom. It's something gone beyond this what is and and, and these notions. I'm going to fill that out. Now let's explore this a little bit. It has to do with the nature of perception. If we just step back and look at how perception works in our life, we have, all of us, had the experience of feeling angry in some situation. And anyone who, who wants to kind of grow up and, and mature psychologically has to admit that anger colors the perception at times. And we even have a phrase in English, one is seeing red, I'm see- I was seeing red, or he's seeing red, she's seeing red. The, the very words are implying this coloring of perception. One's looking at the world, at the situation in that moment, through the lenses of anger. And the perception is correspondingly changed of a person, of ourselves, of a situation. And, and some of you might have tasted this on the retreat, other extreme, 
well, the metta feels like it's going very well, there's a real softness, there's compassion, and one walks outside, and one's just having a cup of tea or whatever it is, and the beauty, one feels there's a tranquility there, it's almost that one is in a deva realm, in, in, in a heavenly realm, at, you know, obviously just a short period of time, but, but it's something that comes, when there's a lot of love around, how does the perception change? When there's a lot of anger around, how does the perception change? When we are angry with another, and I've probably said this at some point in the retreat, typically when we're doing metta practice, we think, oh, I'm angry at him or her, I should give metta to them, because, you know, anger is bad, and I should kind of uh, wish them metta instead. But can be really skillful what happens when instead of immediately going to give the metta to the other person that we're angry at, we give the metta towards ourselves. Oftentimes we need it because we're feeling hurt. It can be a very interesting place to start. And what one may find is that the metta to oneself, things begin to soften. The mind, the heart, begins to soften because one's meeting oneself with metta. Can do. Things soften, the mind soften the eyes then soften and the perception softens because perception is dependent on the state of the mind. So, we have, we could say we have a continuum of, you know, at one end, murderous, you know, homicidal rage, (laughs) and on the other end, beautiful love beautiful loving kindness and compassion and the softness and the openness of that. The mind is always, there's always some degree of love or anger moving towards an object or away from an object, pushing, pulling. There's always some degree of um, love or aversion in the mind. There's always some degree. So even with mindfulness, we tend to think, again, there's just this pure thing called mindfulness, but any moment of consciousness has some degree of grasping experience, wanting to move towards it, pushing it away, aversion, love. It always has some degree, even if it's very, very subtle. Even if it's very subtle. So neutral doesn't really exist. Say again? Neutral. Yeah, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna explain. <laughs> it's good, it's great. <laughs> so there's, there's this spectrum, there's this spectrum, and any moment of consciousness from, as I said, complete rage to bliss of, of you know, loving infinitely all beings, etc. This is right. Any moment of consciousness can be placed somewhere on that spectrum, somewhere on that continuum. Which point on that continuum reveals the real object, the real way things are? So I see that with the with the mind moving on this continuum, the perceptions change. Which one reveals the real object? There's no real object. Or anyone? Okay, we've got... Even internal objects also. 
Anything. <laughs> okay, good. You can't. You can't. Okay, you can't. Human beings, actually, consciousnesses, slugs, sheep, human beings, all of them, believe in real objects. Now, even if this, this is where this becomes very interesting. We, we, um, we can say, no, it's all relative and everything, and, and that's beautiful. And, and this uh, insight is being born, and. Sometimes, though, even if we say that intellectually, it still hasn't. We still believe at some level in real objects, internal and external. And, but as as people have said, in a way, there is no real thing. You can't say there is no neutral point. There is no real object. There is no object independent. Now, someone could say. Someone could say, okay, well, if it's not mindfulness, then maybe it's that thing, equanimity. I've heard about equanimity, and the word equanimity sounds, you know, equal imity, whatever imity is. <laughs> somewhere in the middle, and maybe that's the neutral point, right there. But again, someone practicing equanimity practice deeply would notice the same thing, that as the equanimity deepens, objects are changed. Objects are changed. There's a change of objects. So love and equanimity the result of their presence, the result of them being in in the heart, in the mind, is that objects make less impression in consciousness. They're less prominent in consciousness. And we can see this in the practice, sitting, walking, uh, on the cushion, certainly, as as some of you have found out, when there's a pain, what happens when we do that? What happens when we do that? When there's an emotion, what happens when we bathe it in love? And of course one can see it off the cushion, off, off the outside of the meditation hall. Um, so there's a situation that really seems important or is troubling us a lot. And when there's a lot of love, or when there's a lot of equanimity, it barely impacts, or its importance just doesn't, it doesn't seem so crucial, so pressing, or the actual fact of it barely imprints on consciousness. So, there's a lot here, there's a tremendous amount here. On one level, what can be discovered here is what the Buddha might call skillful means for easeful abiding, for wholesome abiding. Skillful means to develop ease in in life, in a situation. So this is one approach to when there's something difficult, being at ease with that. This is so important. Again, going back to the wholesome nourishment, wholesome abiding. Do we know, are we developing in our life these skills to be able to be at ease more and more? How, How... profoundly that important that is to our life, to our whole sense of the quality of life and, and the ease of our life. Are we skilled? Can we do, are we interested in developing that skill of easeful abiding, of, of having ease, even when something difficult is going on, one has an illness or there's a difficult situation, whatever it is, there's the possibility for ease with that. 
skillful means for ease, but also in, there are insights here. There are insights here, and there and there. They're extremely important and profound. So the first one is that it's the relationship that is important. It's the relationship with what the experience is. It's the relationship with any object that's important. Oftentimes in insight practice or Zen practice or whatever it is, we're giving attention to objects, giving attention to experience and understanding. That's kind of what we're told to do. But sometimes we're so kind of transfixed with what's going on, with the object going on, we're so giving it so much attention that we don't see what's around that attention, the relationship that we have with the object. Sometimes we don't even realize what that relationship is. Putting it very crudely, you could say very crudely, but you could say relationship with objects, dharmas, experience, phenomena, relationships are basically either a relationship of peace or a relationship of struggle. Trying to hang on, trying to get rid of, whatever. So it's either a relationship of peace or a relationship of struggle. When there's metta, love and compassion in that relationship with whatever is going on, Love is peace. Love is a relationship of peace. To have that relationship of love is is to have a relationship of peace, basically. And we can see, we can see that when the relationship is non-struggling with what's difficult, it's non-struggling, the suffering goes out of experience. The suffering goes out of experience to the degree that we can soften our struggle with it. To the degree that love comes into that relationship, that peace comes into that relationship, the suffering goes out of experience. This is so crucial. And again, when we struggle with something, we tend to think, I have this problem or this thing going on in my life or this thing going on in my consciousness is a problem. To practice this way and to see inherently it cannot be a problem. It cannot, in, in Dharma language, it, it's empty of problem. The problem is empty. The problem is something we bring into it through our relationship with it. In itself, any experience is empty of problem. It's so important, that level of insight. It's so absolutely crucial. And you can, even as I said, you get a sense of the immense kind of both potential and responsibility responsibility that gives to consciousness. Immense. That's one level. We can go a bit deeper. We can go a bit deeper. There's the emptiness of how things are. There's the emptiness of what is so-called. And so this is what we were talking about before, and people were saying there is no real object, etc. Earlier in the retreat, we were talking about moments at times the consciousness can open up into the sense of oneness or communion. And sometimes it opens up in a very vast way, vast sense of oneness. Beautiful, beautiful for consciousness to open up to at times. But even that is is 
actually empty. It's still a perception that's come into being through the way we are looking, through our relationship with. And if you remember that lovely note that I read out in, in one of the talks in the first week from the work retreat, and she was talking about this big black space filled with love and holding everything. Beautiful opening, and to have a sense of that very sort of mystical religious sense for some people. Um, that too is coming out of conditions, is born out of conditions, held together by conditions, held together by the way we're viewing in the relationship with. So interesting, there's a line in the in in, in the Metta Sutta, and it, it's funny, I, sometimes I wonder, it's not a line that often seems to get extracted much, but if you read the Metta Sutta, if you just read it with an open mind, it basically describes metta and, and the beauty of all that and what one should do, and then says, this, this leads to awakening. And what it says here is, it goes through the metta, so this is said to be the sublime binding, then it says, by not holding to fixed views, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, etc., 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 gets enlightened. By not holding to fixed views, of how things are, how I am, how an object is, how the world is, by not holding to fixed views. That's where this is going. That's the piece. That's the, 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 the hinge pin. So in a way we talk about things and objects and experience. The truth of them, in a way, is not that they exist really, or that they don't exist. They exist dependent on our relationship with. And so in that, this teaching of emptiness is called the middle way. It's a middle between saying things exist and saying they don't exist. It's called the middle way. Neither existing. And it's not sort of, well, they exist kind of half of the time or something <laughs> like that. It's something that's beyond those. So to say things don't exist is clearly not true. But to see that they don't exist in any way, independently from the way I am looking, independently from the relationship with. So when it says they don't exist, it means they don't exist independently, inherently, or as the Tibetans say, they don't exist from their own side. So how we're approaching this is we're beginning through the loving-kindness and compassion practices to begin to see into the relationship that we have with experience. And to begin to see into the relationship that we have with experience is actually to begin to see into emptiness. It's to begin to see into emptiness. To begin to see into relationship is to begin to see into emptiness. And to begin to see into emptiness is to begin to see into freedom. It's, it's that's where the deepest freedom is. It's right there. So, as I said, we can see this in, med in full meditation practice, sitting, walking, etc. You can also see it in, in one's life or in, in more complex situations. So, for example, uh, take a situation like a, like a meditation retreat and one comes and one comes on this retreat, you come to Guy House, three weeks of retreat and, and you think great, I'm really going to work on my samadhi and get really quiet and calm. 
and then one comes into the hall and it's pretty packed in here and someone's shuffling next to you or uh, coughing or whatever it is and irritation arises and the whole view of the situation of that person is seen through the lens of irritation we've come into the come into the situation with the agenda of what I want and that's colouring everything and in the view the perception changes we can play with this the, the beauty of practice is that you can play with all this and experiment with it could I change that view in a situation like this or some other retreat and this person is restless or wh- whatever it is could I view that situation then as an opportunity to learn patience and then every time there's some disturbance, every time there's some disturbance it's an opportunity to learn patience and the whole view has changed or if you're super advanced Vajrayana (laughs) you sit there and forget the smiley, forget everything my whole purpose of being here is to love you just you (laughs) play with it what happens, the view changes and the perception changes the perception we have of things is dependent on, on the view of how we're seeing. So I was speaking about fear some talks ago, and I can draw this into that area as well. And fear is a very interesting one because it, it can be quite clear with fear. We tend to think, we tend to feel, we tend to believe that there's something or event going on, or about to go on, or will go on in the future, and then I have fear about that. I'm afraid of that. And somehow in there is the assumption that the thing and the event and the situation and the fear are separate. They're separate, and that they're independent. There's, again, an object, any object, and there's how I might relate to it, and I could relate with fear or equanimity or whatever it is, but the object is still the object no matter how I relate to it. Begin to get a sense that that's not really the case. Now with fear, to a degree, at least intellectually, it's obvious, we can see how fear colors our perception. You know, you're afraid walking uh, at night in in the dark and you see the shadows and it looks like, you know, a big... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and it's not it's just the shadows (laughs) coloured coloured with the perception from the fear how does that relate to doing doing is not an object so you're fearful of doing something okay performance maybe or exercising your skill, but there's a fear around your performance. It's still a situation that you're you're viewing. You're viewing how it will be in that situation to to do it or not do it well or not well. It doesn't come across as an object that's kind of neutral, if you like, or it's only what you put on it. Well, put it this way. Your doing of something is... If... um, if there was no, nothing charged about your doing and how well you performed something, there wouldn't be any fear there, and you would see that doing in a different way. 
It would it would become different through through the way you're seeing it. So, so it's you, still you charge it yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, you're, when I say object, I mean in, in the broadest possible sense of the, the word object. Yeah, I don't mean. I mean so that whole situation is a so-called object or thing or event situation. If, in, in when I talked about fear before, I mentioned that a lot of fear is caught up with th- future thinking. We're often afraid of something in the future, and the thinking around it is something in the future, even if it's the next few seconds, or a long time in the future, whatever. It's future thinking based. If I believe in the present, if I believe in a present moment, a, a present situation as something that has real independent existence. If I believe in the present, then fear of the future is inevitable. It's just waiting to happen. And use the Buddha's analogy, as sure as the wheels of the cart follow the ox that pulls it. If I believe in the inherent existence of the present, fear of the future will come. There will be fear of the future. But we can see through these practices and others that the present is lacks inherent existence. It's not independent. The past, too, is not independent. So I can think back on, um, you know, one thinks back on romances of, of, of one's past, you know, life. <laughs> Depending on one's mood, you know, it's like, oh, she, he, they were lovely and wasn't that sweet and... <laughs> And in another mood, you think back and you think, yikes, what was I I thinking? Or, you know, if I think back to my education, my school, my high school, and sometimes I think back, and it was a very pressured environment academically, and a lot of kind of cruelty, you know, I went to boys' school, a lot of kind of, um, yeah, cruelty. And sometimes I look back in another mood and and I think, yeah, we really had a laugh, that was really fun, that was really... You know, the the present is not independent. The past is also not independent. They depend on the mind state in the present. The future is the same. The future is the same. The future is only going to become present and past. It's dependent. It's not independent. It's empty. When I begin to see this, it's like I don't really believe in the present. You can't really believe in the future. And if you can't really believe in the future, fear has no footing. It has no footing. I can't really believe in fear. If we go back to that Aksayamati Sutra and talked about three sort of levels and in, in the third level it said for those who have seen deeply into emptiness or seen the unconditioned or whatever love is not based on anything at all and just to briefly explore this it appears in other traditions as well and other, other sources the, the Sufi poet Rumi has a lovely poem which I've I read once and have since misplaced or cannot find again but he talks about or a couple of lines in it, love without an object, love without an object, not based on anything at all. It's not even love towards all beings or all things, it's actually without an object. And again, the mind can just be like baffled by that. This is love without an object, and I think the next line is, that's the best love of all. In the some of the Tibetan traditions in the Vajrayana, they'd also talk about compassion without any object of reference. 
Same thing, compassion without any object of reference. And it's also said that that's the best of all paths without any potential pitfalls in it. So just to mention that as a possibility, as something oftentimes coming, when when one goes deep into emptiness or, or there's that kind of opening, one can begin sometimes to get a glimpse of this. In a way, actually, I want to just drop something in here, which I may have said before, but I, I think it's pertinent. I think it's important when one's listening to teachings and, and, and such to notice one's reaction to, to what's being said. So often as talking about this love without an object and very sort of deep teachings or high teachings or whatever. And just what just interesting to notice what goes on for us when we hear that. And there's a whole range of reactions that are possible. Some people hear something like that, and I, I see this quite a lot, and just turn off, just turn off. Something just shuts down, can't hear it, don't want to hear it. Or, you know, I see people picking at their nails and stuff. It's just something, <laughs> something, something goes on, can't ha- don't, don't want to know, can't handle it. Or we make it really excited. And, you know, there's a beauty of that. There's a beauty of Dharma excitement. And sometimes we get so excited that we think, where I am now is completely irrelevant and, and not worth anything. That's where I want to go. Um, or a kind of intense striving can come into practice. It's just, just, I think it's just important to see where this is landing in, in the moment, in, in oneself. And just to notice that. And of course it can land in a very lovely place of just simple aspiration. But there's, there's a range there and it differs at different times. And just to see. The Buddha talked about two movements of mind, two energies. Tanha which literally t- translates a thirst, this never un- unfulfillable, endless wanting, 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 cra- craving. And another energy called chanda, which they're both kind of desire. You could translate them both as a desire, but chanda is more aspiration, will to do. It's actually the fuel for our practice. And where do teachings land? Does tanha grab hold of them and make a problem out of it? Or does chanda, do they land in chanda? And so there is, you know, really a place for healthy, noble, beautiful aspiration in our practice. And we can hear stuff and it's just, it's, it's, it lands in a good place. I think it, it just needs some awareness, you know, just to notice what goes on. And the where it's from, but the image of wa- you know walking, wanting to climb a mountain, and there's the mountain in the distance, and one wants to get to the mountain peak, and one has one's vision set on that, but also just the, the footstep in front of one, and one holds both, one holds both, and there is a sensitive balance there. It's important. Okay. So this fading, this fading, what, what is there more about that? So things can dissolve to some degree or completely or fade to some degree or completely when we do this, when we let go of, um, or when, when, we, when we hold them in love. Why? 
What's going on there? Why is that? Love, love or compassion, whatever word, love, like equanimity, it shares something with equanimity. And we can talk about a kind of continuum of love or, or deepening of love, but in its depths, in the depths of love, it shares something with the quality of equanimity, and that is, in its depth, it's non-grasping. So it's very different then from the sort of typical, you know, Hollywood scenario of of love that we've we've moved quite away since then, uh, since that. And it's in its depths, the nature of love is non-grasping, like equanimity. It's non-grasping. And we see, again, to reiterate, there's a couple of things here. We see that with, you know, John talked about dependent origination, so he probably talked about that link between clinging and craving and then the suffering that comes out of that. And that's one link. Did he talk about this? Yeah. That's one link that's very available to our scrutiny and experimentation. We can actually learn to relax the grasping and see the suffering go out. doesn't feed suffering. Equanimity and love in their depths are non-grasping. There, there isn't a pushing away or a pulling towards. Non-grasping. But we can go a little bit deeper with the dependent origination. Grasping makes the way things appear. It is something that makes the way things appear. It also, grasping makes things appear. Grasping makes the world appear. So this is completely counterintuitive. Grasping makes the world appear. We tend to think the world is there. Objects are there. Grasping makes the world appear. <laughs> um, I think... Well... First of all, to see it in, in one's experience, that with this kind of practice, one, when one's emphasizing these, this approach, the more welcoming there is, the, basically the less aversion, the less pushing away and pulling towards, then we say less pushing and pulling, that's less grasping. And what we notice is that the world, the world of experience, appears less. And, and if there's really very little grasping, it can be that very little appears at all. It just kind of dissolves, dissolves, dissolves. So it's really to see that and to conclude from that there's something about grasping that's actually building experience. It's, um, I don't know that one can explain it any, any, any more than that, but the seeing of it is absolutely crucial. Is, is, I mean, if we talk about what does, what does it mean, what does liberation mean? There's no liberation without seeing that. And then if you really want to, you know, turn your consciousness inside out. Grasping builds experience. What builds grasping? Experience. I can't grasp without anything to grasp at. Dependent co-origination. The mind cannot get around this. It cannot put it into nice, neat little packets. There's this, and then there's this, and then there's this, and this is different. First comes this, and it's something... So dependent origination is a map conceptual map that eats its like a snake eating its own tail it's a conceptual framework that leads to the dissolving of conceptual frameworks it's 
pretty far out. <laughs> um, not easy to understand. So I really know that I'm not talking about stuff that's easy to understand. But we can begin to see this. This is the amazing thing. We can begin to see this. And when one sees it, the more one sees it, the implications are totally radical. It turns our basic intuitions about life and experience inside out, upside down, on their head. That's, that. that's how radical the, the Dharma is. And begin to see... There is no thing, there is no thing independent, independently existing, no separate thing. No, no thing, no problem. No thing, no problem. The problems that I make in life are dependent on me relating to things as, as separate things. So we also see that as we let go of grasping, we notice that grasping is also a factor which clouds our seeing. When there's grasping, we're blurring our vision, we're covering up our vision, we're distorting our vision through that grasping. So love and non-grasping also lead, bring with them a seeing more deeply, more clearly. In Dharma terms, what does it mean to see more, more deeply, more clearly? It means to see things like impermanence and this very emptiness, to see that more clearly, that's what it means. And out of that seeing more clearly comes freedom and actually comes even more love. And the whole thing builds freedom, build it, or it opens freedom, it allows freedom and love. Now it, it can be that hearing about emptiness, when we first hear about it, it sounds very nihilistic, very destructive teaching, very scary often teaching. But if, it, if our practice of it and contemplation of emptiness is not leading to love and compassion, is not opening love and compassion to some degree, there's something askew in how we're seeing it and how we're practicing it and how we're viewing emptiness. So by its nature, it should lead to uh, more of a sense of love. There's something, if it's not, there's something, we need to look again, there's something we're not quite understanding, we're just a bit off balance with it. But it leads to more love, to more, less of a sense of separation, less of a sense of barriers, less of a sense of fault-finding with oneself, with others, with situations even. Less self-inflating, deflating, etc. And in a way, the path of practice, as it deepens, is to see that, we, we begin to see that all things, all things are empty. All things. So, selves are empty. Myself, another self. Things are empty. So-called inner things, so-called outer things. Minds are empty. What we call consciousness is actually empty, doesn't really exist as something separate, independent. Suffering too is empty. Actually, suffering doesn't actually exist independently. And somehow, with all of that, in all of that, mysteriously, even though no selves, no others, no suffering even, somehow, more love and compassion is coming out of it. In, in the sort of mystery of the paradox of it. And so, you know, 
to reiterate, I'm aware that sometimes we hear this and it just, I don't know, you know what this is talking about. But this is actually possible for us. This really is possible. So if not through this avenue, through other Dharma avenues, we can open this up in, in a very real way that it begins to have a very real impact on our lives and the way we live. Just finally, from the Aksayamati Sutra and from, from our practice, we, we can see that there are, there's a continuum or a spectrum of love we could say, it's not a very good word, or levels of love, even worse word, but the human consciousness moves on that continuum. It has to move on that continuum. So sometimes we do not feel love. And we're just sitting here, kind of really grinding away at the phrases, planting the seeds of intention. Sometimes we even feel angry, and yet we're trying And that very trying, even though we're feeling nothing or feeling the opposite, is an expression of love. Absolutely. And there's a whole spectrum right from there, all the way through love to self and other and humdrum, I I love my cat, I love whatever it is, all the way through to this, you know, very exalted sounding love without an object. And that's all there. And the human consciousness, amazingly, can move on that spectrum. It does move on that spectrum. And that whole spectrum is available for us. And in a way, our very humanity, our very humanity is, is in that movement. So we can't always be in the exalted realms. No way. Our very humanity is in the movement. And, and in a way, our very humility is in the movement. We, it, it, it has to move. sit together for a minute or two before we have some questions. Does that work? Um, 
Careful. I mean, it may work at times for you. Play with it. Play with it. But there's probably something in it that doesn't cover quite. Emptiness has a lot of aspects to what it means, and a lot of, um, in a way, it's also very thorough. So it's like sometimes we can have a word like that, and we're leaving something unchallenged, and and there there needs to be a real thoroughness. So we're you know we got rid of a lot of stuff, but there's left this sense of a womb or or, or whatever and, and that kind of thing. But it may be. A, a really important stepping stone. So don't don't necessarily just throw it out immediately. Um, could could be you want to experiment with it a little bit, um, as, but bear in mind it's n- probably not going to be a final resting place. Hmm. I think in the Mahayana they use that phrase or the Dharma Dhatu. Yes. It's the womb of emptiness. Everything emerges from. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um. <laughs> No, it's, it's, it's good. It's really important. I'm, thank you very much for bringing it up. There are certain experiences that are deep experiences, quite common and relatively speaking quite accessible in med- for committed meditators. One of them will be a sense of consciousness opening out very vast spaciousness and one is just open and being this very little sense of self and just a sense of things emerging from this space in quite an insubstantial way, emerging from the space and disappearing back into it. Beautiful state, very open, oftentimes brings a lot of love and a lot of sense of freedom with it. Not that far off for a committed meditator, if it sounds fantastic, it's actually not that far off. Very, very beautiful, a lot of freedom in it, a lot to learn from it, and yet, what happens, and I see it so much, and, and it's gone on more than 2,000 years, it predates the Buddha. One then gives an inherent existence to that spaciousness, and that spaciousness as a womb, as a source, as a sort of... Uh, yes, it reifies that, and, when, and then people substitute the word emptiness for that empty space. and uh, It's a beautiful, and for a lot of people, a really necessary stepping stone. So, the other extreme, and I, I should have said it when I was talking, is these states that can open oneness, or this kind of big space out of which everything's emerging, or compassion that is woven into the fabric of the universe, all beautiful states, you don't also want to rush through them. So there's, again, there's a middle way here. You don't want to stop there pitch your camp, build your house, say, I've arrived, now all I need to do is kind of just get used to this, and say, this is the ultimate truth, I've discovered it. Okay. It happens. It, believe me, it, ha- it, ha- it happens in, in text you can find. It's gone on for thousands and thousands of years. It happens, I meet people all the time, this has gone on. People have done a lot of practice. It's, it's very tempting to do that. So, you don't want to do that in one extreme, but on the other extreme, you don't want to just say, oh, this isn't, this is just, you know, just another condition. You know, you know. <laughs> let's uh, you know better get going and that kind of <laughs> um, there's something in opening to a state like that whatever it is infinite consciousness pervading the universe these are all quite related states very very potentially incredibly transforming in, if for the long term 
people often fall into one of, of two extremes with them. One is to reify them and think they've arrived somewhere and, and actually stop short their questioning in the path. It's just, that's, that's it, there's nothing more. Or um, dismiss them too quickly and not hang out and really let the being, let the heart be transformed by, by, by what's in that state and what one, can, what one can learn in that state. But when the Buddha talks about emptiness and talks about awakening, he's talking about understanding the very nature of all perception it, itself. So all perception, even the perception of a space out of which all things arise and pass. All perception, and somehow seeing beyond, seeing to the beyond of all perceptions, any perception whatsoever of space, of consciousness, of time, of a present moment, of things, of self, of other, all of that is is seen to be empty and gone beyond. So it's quite... You know, is that because it's conditioned? Uh, well, to say, uh, how do you mean? It's well, you know, the experience of, of that. If you're in a meditative yes. state, it is conditioned. The, the experience that you were describing is still conditioned. Yeah. Now, there's a sense, and it's a very, it's a very, as I say, it's a very beautiful sense, though, that a person in that state will feel. What's conditioned is the things arising and passing back into that state. But this space itself, what some people call dharmadhatu, or some people call it rigpa, or you know, a lot of different charged words get used, or infinite consciousness, cosmic consciousness, etc., that that's unconditioned. And it can seem, in the experience, very beautiful, that that's so steady, and everything else, all the other experience, body sensations, thoughts, emotions... Mm-hmm. All that is arising out of that stillness, imperturbable stillness, and dying back into it. It's like it's, one feels like one's seeing the birth and death of experience, and what remains seems unconditioned, and it's there. And it's just a matter of sometimes I lose contact with it, and then I get it, I get back into contact. But still, one hasn't seen and understood at the deepest level the nature of perception. And the Buddha said, to understand fully the nature of perception is to be fully awakened. Put that way, again, it doesn't sound very sexy, does it? Um, but there's there's something in there. It's so uncompromising and so kind of, it, you know, I won't put the pole here. I'll keep going, keep the questioning alive until one's totally, um, totally understood this, this dependent arising and how anything at all, no matter how beautiful, how subtle, how refined, how seemingly... Uh, ultimate com- comes to be. And that doesn't mean dismissing everything as just conditions and just it's all irrelevant. It doesn't mean that at all because one also opens to the unconditioned and, and the, the beauty of what that means as well. So it's, thank you. It's a, it's a really, really important question. Are you going to give a talk on the unconditioned? Not on this retreat. <laughs> um, not, not on this retreat, no. people clear with the, the practice side of, of this approach? Did no. <laughs> okay. Um, you spoke about fear, but what I've been working with today is anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's very much not future-based. Okay. In fact, it feels yeah. very old. Yeah. You know, as we've discussed, yeah. where all this comes from. And it's not dissolving. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, I mean, maybe I could just apply a little bit more patience, or maybe I'm not applying the method in quite the right way. But mm. you know, it, it did hang around all day. Yeah. I mean, in some way, it doesn't it doesn't matter. So what's been thirty years of the day doesn't really matter. But um, I mean, am I just not applying the method right? Because it's you know, it's I mean, it is very closely related to fear, but it's not fear as you as you sure, about because sure. there isn't really any thinking. There's certainly not any future thinking. It's just hanging around, and I was kind of sort of trying to, because I know where it comes from, I was trying to picture it sort of wrapped up in a nice cosy duvet. Mm -hmm. All pipe lagging, because I was making pipes last week. <laughs> <laughs> that was my job. Um, and that, that was kind of how the, you know, sort of, um, surrounding it with love, thing was coming. But it, it didn't dissolve, in fact, it got worse. Mm. Um. Or, should I say, stronger and even less pleasant than it was to begin with. Okay, yeah. I'm not sure if if you know you're doing it right or not. I mean, it's it's possible that there there is a hidden agenda of trying to get rid of it through through doing this. Um, not that I could see okay. But okay. It's possible. So you could try. You could try, just really going to more of a sense of welcoming rather than wrapping it in love. Really, really welcoming the anxiety. That's one option. Remember, this is just one technique, one approach out of many. But if you want to explore it further, I would emphasize the total accepting and the welcoming. When anything comes up, whatever it is, anxiety or anything at all, there's conditioning from the past, as you say, this comes from the past, but that past conditioning is not enough for it to arise in the present. And a thing cannot arise in the present without me doing something as well in the present. And and that's, you know, you can't change the past, so to speak, but what we can do is understand what is it that I'm putting in in the present which is sustaining or even allowing this thing to arise. Is it going to be one of the three root poisons? Adding? You mean greed, aversion or delusion? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's good. So I did start self-identification mm -hmm. in the last sitting yeah. no, I haven't seen that before yes. yeah. so this, that would be another approach very similar to what we're doing self-identification like, gr like grasping mm. is a builder of experience mm. it turns out that when we identify with what's going on that also builds things so you could go if, if, that, if you've got a foot in the door that way great you, know, and you can find what happens when I it's just something going on, and one's identified less and less. It's also um, one's building experience less. So, so how would I do that? Well, how, how did you... You noticed there was identification? Yeah, I just noticed it. Okay. Um, is it possible to see an experience see an experience as just... It's just happening. It doesn't really belong to me. Uh, again, that's... That, this well, again, I thought, I thought I did, but, you know, there's so much hidden agenda that Yeah. These are practices that take time. You know, if it's not working today and one needs relief today, then then introduce some some other aspect, compassion to oneself or or whatever. Yeah. So again, it's just some people this this will be significant for others less so. Most people anyway, it's something to develop over time, and it's one of many practices. And you you know you want to have a range of options that you can draw from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, um, 
it seems like the unwholesome states definitely need um, compassion yeah. or kindness. Mm -hmm. But what about the wholesome states? Yeah. Which I said, oh, this doesn't need. Okay. Um, what happens anyway if one gives compassion and kindness to wholesome states? What happens? Does anyone? More love comes. No. Okay. Did, what did you find, Tony? Did you try it, or you just thought it was perplexing and it, you didn't try it? It was perplexing, because I said, uh, you know, I had a feeling of gratitude mm -hmm. that, Beautiful. that arose, and yeah. I said, well, this really doesn't need yeah. compassion. Yeah, <laughs> lovely. Yes. Was, okay. Um, I mean, you could not worry about whether it needs it or not, or whether it seems to need it, and just go ahead and give it some and see what happens. <laughs> um, it just felt... I mean, why give to, Absolutely, to yeah, sure. It make any sense. Understandable. So one thing is just to bypass that thinking and just go ahead and do it. Okay. Another thing is, and that's why I said that thing about f experiences and phenomena are fleeting. So gratitude is something, it's, you know, metaphorically speaking, all experience is impoverished because of its fleeting nature. And it's, almost, it's, just, it's just part of the stream of experience. Mm -hmm. And so give, give it compassion, you know. Using metaphorical, almost poetic, you know, kind of images. Don't think about it. Just do it. It's more we're interested in the ability to do that. As someone said, if if I do that, then maybe something opens up more. So again, skillful abiding in ease and deepening ease, and also the insight. What happens when I do it? So I would just kind of okay. set it aside and just go ahead and and you know, full steam ahead. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you were saying about this is complete welcoming. Yes. You know, like you know when when the first sun comes out in the spring, mm. <laughs> and you completely open to it. Um, that wholesome things arising, it seems to me, it's fairly easy to do that. Mm -hmm. But you know, pain, yeah. something like that. I mm. mean, this is going to take time, isn't it, to kind of find a way. It may take time, absolutely. So, I mean, it, it, people are very different. I mean, people are very different. Some people immediately the, the pick up on something that it's actually easing. This, like I said, when the when there's grasping there, when there's pushing away and pulling, mm. there's more suffering in the experience. Mm. And so, even though there's pain, it pays to relax the grasping. Right? Mm. You know, it, it de just definitely people. Some people see that immediately, and it's just very clear. Well, mm. okay, let's just do that. Others, it, it takes longer, and it, it's fine. Um, so it may take time, but it also may not take time. Mm. Is it harder with more difficult experience? Yeah, maybe, but also maybe not. You know, so just play with it, play with it, and see. Mm. Uh, sorry, Annie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, if one directs love towards something or bathes it in love and then one notices, oh, this problematic thing goes away a little bit and then a little time goes by and something else problematic comes up and the immediate thought is, ah, I'll knock it on the head with some meta <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully that will, you know, get rid of it. Um, one just has to watch that that's the intention or if that's there and it will creep in it's, it, it will creep in but can one either be coming from as much as possible 
the place of curiosity. I'm just curious what it does when I do that. I'm just curious. So it's a different thing. I'm not looking for it to go away. I'm just curious about how things arise and wh- how, what the nature of experience is. So either curiosity, or one can just kind of intend for the welcoming to be completely genuine, just really, really genuine. Um, so it's something you have to feel when it's there and just, just try and soften it or open it more in, inside. I mean, I. I don't know how to answer that question, but I know that it's possible to open to something which is unconditioned in a way that brings freedom, and in a way that's all we need to know. That's all we need to know. That's that's possible, and that the conditions can, we can take care of the conditions that move us towards that. that that's possible. Like whether it's something conditioned, experiencing something unconditioned, or I, I don't know about that. I don't think that's quite the right question. It's more, it's more like, is it possible to experience something unfabricated, unborn, unconditioned, deathless? Yes. Yes, it's possible for, for, you could say, for consciousness to open out into that. But even that's not quite the right language. How, how does one know that that's what it is and it's not mm. the other levels that you explained? What's the difference? The difference is that in other levels there's still a sense of things like space and time and the present moment and... Um, consciousness knowing something or knowing itself or something and in 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 an experience of the unconditioned all, all that's it's, it's just gone it's just it's something totally beyond what words can can describe or concepts can describe beyond an experience of time beyond an experience of space etc et it's, it's <laughs> um, okay probably enough talking for tonight. Um, so it's just after nine. Uh, time for some walking meditation. And uh, the last... Well, you don't have last sittings anymore, do you? Okay, do whatever you... <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.